What comes to your mind when you think about or hear the word judgment? Do you have good thoughts or, or bad thoughts about judgment? You know, you and I make all kinds of judgments every single day of our lives. We make judgments about food. We make judgments about decisions. We make judgments about people. There's people you trust. There's people you don't trust. Uh, That slogan, don't judge, it's nice for a brand. It's nice for a t-shirt. It has nothing to do with reality. Tell the person who thinks there should be no judging that you think that judgment is wrong. And then step back and see what kind of judgment they make against you. Friends, we cannot escape judgment because we judge. And we were made to judge and to be judged. And try as we might, we cannot escape the fact that this world is headed day by day, hour by hour, toward judgment. The God who's created this world will judge this world. We're going to see that in Revelation 15 through 16 this morning. Here's the main point I want you to get from our text today. Be confident. Evil and evildoers will be judged by God's certain coming judgment. Be confident. Evil, evildoers will be judged by God's certain and coming judgment. You're going to be really helped to have your scriptures opened today as we work through uh, this text. We're going to see two points this morning. One, judgment celebrated, judgment anticipated. Judgment celebrated, anticipated. And two, judgment executed, judgment completed. Judgment executed and completed. I want very much for you as a Christian to be encouraged not fearful of God's judgment. And if you're not a Christian, I pray this text, this sermon will wake you up and it will cause you to flee to Jesus Christ for for your refuge and salvation. Let's begin by seeing judgment uh, celebrated and anticipated. This is chapter 15. I'm going to read this now. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. Standing beside the sea of glass with harps of gold and God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked. 
And the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. We begin this chapter, we're leaving the last cycle in Revelation, which was chapters 12 to 14. We saw there this spiritual battle that's taking place between Christ and the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, and now it's complete. Here's a new cycle. John sees a new sign, another sign in heaven, and it's obviously terrifying. It's majestic. There's seven angels. There's seven plagues. It's the last. With them, the wrath of God is finished. When we hear that word plagues, it reminds us, doesn't it, of of the Exodus. When God judged those who opposed his people, but he used the plagues to save his own people. So the Exodus points us forward to something greater to come. One of the scriptures, one of Revelation's basic lessons is this. Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat history. But before John unveils the plagues, his vision changes. He sees the end. He sees this scene of worship and the presence of the holy God. In verse 2, the sea of glass with fire. It represents God's transparent holiness. Who's there? Those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. This is the 144,000 we saw last week. Those who did not give way to idolatry. They did not worship the beast. This is God's people in Christ. And rather than being consumed by this sea of glass with fire... They're standing beside it or, or own it on it. They belong there. They have harps that God has supplied to them. They sing, verse 3, the song of Moses, the song of the Lamb. What did God's people do once they were on the other side of the Red Sea, on the other side of the plagues, on the other side of the judgment? They sang to God for his deliverance. Here's God's people on the other side. The sea of glass, the the other side of the plagues, the other side of judgment, and they worship God. They celebrate His judgment and His salvation. The first exodus has come forward to give way to this greater exodus. And what do they praise God for? The greatness of His deeds. How just and true His his ways are. They've seen their God act in their mighty redemption to deliver them. They ascribe to him glory because he alone is holy. Nations will come to worship this God because he reveals his righteous act before the nations. They're worshiping God for his work in salvation and in judgment. They're praising and celebrating God for his godness, his deliverance, his judgment on the wicked world. John sees worship. The coming vision of judgment begins with worship toward God for his deliverance. And then John moves from this scene of worship 
the very end to what he saw next in verse 5. These visions aren't in chronological order. It's the order of the sequence of what John saw. John is now back into history. Judgment's being anticipated. And John comes back to the seven angels with the seven plagues in verse 6. They come out of the sanctuary of the tent of witness in verse 5. It means they're coming from the presence of God to do God's work. Their clothing is, is pure. It's bright. Golden sashes. In verse 7, the four living creatures give them golden bowls full of the wrath of the God who lives forever and ever. The sanctuary is filled with smoke from the glory of God and His power. This is a vision that makes us feel the weightiness of God. These bowls are full of of God's wrath. We see the eternity of God. He lives forever and ever. The sanctuary filled with smoke signifies the holiness of the presence of God. His glory, His power. This is awesome. It's terrifying. God might be casually ignored. He might be taken for granted on earth, but notice the weightiness of His glory is so clear and transparent in heaven. His transcendence, His majesty, He's ruling over time. It answers to Him. Not the other way around. We see the God in total control. And so from the throne room of heaven, we anticipate we are being prepared for judgment. Evil is present in this world, but evil is not ultimate. All right, we've just seen this scene in chapter 15. What should we take away from it? First, I want you to see very clearly the purity of God's wrath, the purity of His wrath. It's holy. It's rational, not arbitrary. It comes from the throne room of God. It's nothing like the wrath of the beast. It's nothing like the petty and often unrighteous wrath of men. The angels who are going to mediate this wrath, verse 6, are righteously clothed, pure, bright linen. God's people are proclaiming that God is holy, verse 4. And the smoke from the glory of God signifies His holiness. This is the God of Isaiah's vision, holy, 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 eternally praiseworthy. So when you think about God's wrath, do not think about it as a bigger version of petty human beings. This is pure and justified. The Scriptures teach clearly God is good. Goodness is the essence of God. The Scriptures never teach God is wrath. That means God's wrath flows out of His goodness. And His wrath is praiseworthy because it never confuses good with evil. It always opposes, it always judges evil. Sinful men may hate God's wrath and the idea of it. Mighty angels are praising God for His wrath because it's so opposed to evil. Closely tied to that is the justice of God's judgment. 
Look at the specificity with which God's people praise him. Verse 3, just, true are your ways. Verse 4, you alone are holy. Your righteous acts have been revealed. Nations will come to worship God because God alone is praiseworthy. The lyrics of the song extol his justice, even especially in his judgment. God will be worthy of praise because in his judgments there will not be a hint of injustice. No one will stand before God and make a credible accusation against him. Can you imagine a judgment that has no mistakes, that will not err, that has perfect wisdom? We all know, some of you know personally, what it is to experience miscarriage of justice in this world. There will never be a miscarriage of justice with God. Forever and ever he will be praised for his justice. See next, the gift of prayer. And specifically here, it's the gift of prayer when it's taken away. Where do we see that? Look at verse 8. No one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Among the other things that means, it means no more intercession. It's complete. To this point, intercession could be made for the nations... But there's going to come a point when the final prayer of incense, right, has been offered up to God, and now comes judgment. So the immediate question, I think, for all of us is, would that even have an effect on your prayer life? Would it affect it? Or is your prayer life, if you're honestly thinking, so small that you're concerned just for yourself, And your temporary needs, which are important. But you don't appreciate something until it's taken away. I wonder how many of us would associate that cliche with prayer. Prayer being taken away for others. How do you expand your prayer life? Practically, number one, pray the scriptures. Pray the Psalms. Look at the prayers of Paul and pray those prayers. These are Holy Spirit-inspired prayers that you can pray for other peoples and places. Make good use of AIDS. I find personally Operation World and the Joshua Project, both of which you can get online to help you in your prayer life. Uh, Joshua Project focuses on different people groups in the world. Uh, In our own church, we've done this since we started. We just pray through the nations every year using Operation World. It's a prayer guide. And I do trust that as we pray together, the Lord is using our prayers in ways we don't understand. But one day will. There is a point, brothers and sisters, when the sanctuary will be closed until the seven plagues are finished. Let's help each other pray and be those who do pray. And then finally, I want you to see from this chapter the joy of salvation. Do you see how God's people are praising and enjoying God, celebrating God who has rescued them? This is like the Red Sea, but it's on a far greater scale. 
I want you to notice very specifically in verses 3 to 4, there is not one person in that choir who is confused about their role in their salvation. No one is bragging about what they've done. No one is confused about who the praise belongs to. They know that what's been done for them could have never been done for themselves. William Barclay writes, Heaven is heaven because in it, at last, all self, all self-importance are lost in the presence of the greatness and the glory of God. When we know our salvation in its fullness, our joy will be complete because it's going to be totally centered in God and not us. Do you want to grow now in the joy of your salvation? Meditate on what God has saved you from. What he will save you from. His wrath. His judgment. Meditate deeply on the goodness he's shown you in Christ, he will show you in Jesus Christ. There's so much joy in this song because it's all toward God. It's nothing of us. The singers know it's been God's power that's delivered them, undeserved, unmerited. And in that knowledge, there is power for joy. This cycle of judgment begins with the celebration of God's judgment and the anticipation of his judgment. And now it moves to chapter 16, where judgment is executed and judgment is completed. So what I want to do is I want to walk you through the the bowls of wrath, and then I want to apply it to our lives. But before I do that, I do want to give you some context that we need for these bowls. When we were back in Revelation 8 and 9, John the Apostle walked us through the trumpets. And there, just as God's people played the trumpets around the wall of of Jericho to warn their enemies destruction is coming, so the trumpets of Revelation 8 and 9 are played throughout history to warn of God's final coming wrath. And like the bowls, the trumpets affect the earth, the sea, the rivers, the sky, the abyss where Satan dwells. And it even mentions the river Euphrates until at last, the last trumpet blows and the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of God. The question was, the question is, do you hear the warnings of the trumpets as they're playing? Trumpets warn, bowls pour out wrath. I understand these bowls to come near the end of history. And I understand them to be giving different perspectives on the judgment of God, this entire complex of God's final judgment. And I also understand that the trumpets and the bowls parallel each other. But there's some differences we're going to see as we work through them. So I want you to follow along. We see immediately... Beginning in verse 1, there's this loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And so the bowls begin. In verse 2, the angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So the first bowl affects the earth. It's not just the earth, it's the earth's inhabitants, specifically those who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Remember, the mark of the beast is not a physical mark. 
it signifies who your spiritual master is. Those marked by the beast worship and serve the beast, Satan. Those who are sealed, those marked by the lamb, worship and serve the risen Christ. So the bowl of wrath, of harmful and painful sores is poured out on idolaters. Those who refuse to bow their knee to the risen Christ. This bowl is like the sixth plague in which God sent boils or sores to inflict the, inflict the Egyptians, but he spared his own people. So I take this bowl to represent the agony that those who refuse to come to Christ will know and experience. It teaches us to be careful where you're looking for your life because that place could bring you death if it's not Jesus Christ. And then we come to verse 3. There the second angel pours out his bowl into the sea. It becomes like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. When we were in the second trumpet, one-third of the sea became blood. One-third of the creatures died. In the second bowl, it's all blood. Everything dies. What we're seeing is that what sustains the world, the natural world, is all coming undone. And then we come to the third angel and the third bowl in verse 4. And John saw the rivers and springs of water became blood. This third bowl affects the rivers. Becomes like blood. You remember the Nile River was turned to blood in the first uh, plague that affected Egypt. This third bowl affects the rivers. And it mirrors the third trumpet in Revelation 8. When the third trumpet blew, the rivers, the fresh waters, became bitter. Here the river becomes blood. It's intensifying. The natural world is undergoing judgment. The water we need for life is is not usable. And in the midst of this judgment, there's this declaration of praise to God. Verse 5. The angel in charge of the waters praises God as the Holy One who is and who was for His justice in bringing these judgments. Why? Verse 6. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And then verse 7, the altar speaks. And the altar represents the saints who are crying out to God from under the altar. And they have that the judgments of the Lord God Almighty are true and just. Now to this point in Revelation, we've seen the true God praised again and again as the one who is, who was, and who is to come. But here in verse 5, he's praised as the God who is and who was. Why? Because these bowls represent his coming. Leading up to his coming, these Bowls are intensifying anything we've seen in judgment thus far in Revelation. And we come to verse 8. The fourth angel pours out the fourth bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat. This fourth bowl mirrors the fourth trumpet, in which one-third of the sun was destroyed. But here, the entire sun is intensified until it scorches people with fire heat. I take this to 
represent the intensity of the punishment of those who rebel against Christ. But what's their response in verse 9? They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. What should so clearly lead to repentance leads to deeper rebellion. And the bowls keep coming. When we come to the fifth bowl, we leave the natural world, the natural realm. We leave the visible realm for the invisible realm. Evil will be dealt with and judged in every realm where it exists in the world. We read, the fifth angel, verse 10, poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. When we were in Revelation 9, the fifth trumpet, darkness was released on the earth and demons tortured those who rebelled against God. There was psychological turmoil in idolatry. Do you see the intensity of the fifth bowl? The beast throne itself is now the object of judgment. And like that ninth plague of darkness in Egypt, the beast kingdom is plunged into darkness. They're gnawing their tongues. They're cursing God for their pain, the terribleness of their anguish. God's final judgment is is moving closer and closer. And just as with the warnings of the trumpets, so it is with the bowls, those under the judgment will not repent. And so we come to the sixth angel and the sixth bowl of verse 12, and we read, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its waters were dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now here's a part of Scripture, which I think, at least the part about Armageddon, is widely known but not necessarily widely understood. I want us to think through this together. When we worked through the sixth trumpet in chapter 9, we read this, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And when they were released, they killed one-third of human beings. Now we're back at the Euphrates. In John's day, the river Euphrates was understood to be the boundary of the Roman Empire. And there was fear about those who could invade the empire from beyond the Euphrates. Here, verse 12, the waters of the Euphrates are dried up, and that prepares the way for kings from the east. Now, think back to the Old Testament, Old Covenant. Who came and invaded the people of God? It was kings from the east. Syria, Babylon, Persia, And they pointed forward to greater opposition that is to come. So look who's coming behind them in verse 13. 
the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, which we've just read about in chapters 12 and 13. This is the unholy trinity of Satan and the state or government and false religion that deceives so many in this age. And this unholy trinity opposes the church in this brief time between the resurrection and the return of Jesus. But do notice, it's not the coming of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet that John is primarily concerned with. Look at the text. It's what's coming out of their mouths. That's what's repeated in that verse. Three unclean spirits like frogs. What's coming out of their mouths is unclean. It's demonic. It's a great assault against the church, against God, against his truth. Verse 14 makes clear they are demonic spirits. Demonic power that is so powerful it can even deceive kings, the great ones in our world. These kings think they're the great ones. They think they have all this power, but they unknowingly are being deceived by this unseen, unholy trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And this battle is most likely intense persecution that will come right near the end. It will feel overwhelming. It will be demonic in nature as kings of the earth and those who follow them will assemble against the people of God. But it will not ultimately be God's people who are under threat. It will be the great ones, the world. It's not going to be the first time in Scripture that kings have been deceived by lying spirits. We read about this in 1 Kings 22. King Ahab was persuaded by a lying spirit, a false prophet, to go into a battle where he would be killed. And now these kings are assembling for this intense battle. They surely think in their pride they will win it. But brothers and sisters, you're meant to be encouraged. For notice when the battle takes place. Verse 14, on the great day of God Almighty. This is a battle, a war they should not have ever decided to fight. This battle, just as every battle that includes the people of God, belongs to the Lord. And notice right as it's about to start, the the, the narrative is intensifying. Suddenly, verse 15, Jesus says, behold, I'm coming like a thief. How does a thief come? He does not announce his visit. It's a surprise. And then the risen Christ announces a blessing. One of seven in the book of Revelation. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And it's just as we hear this blessing from the risen Christ that John goes back to the battle in verse 16 where he sees the kings assembled in that place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. I was terrified of Armageddon when I was a child. Terrified. It's it's not a battle between two nations. This word Armageddon simply means Mount 
Megiddo in Hebrew. And there wasn't a Hebrew boy in Israel who grew up not knowing about Megiddo. And it wasn't a mountain. It was a plain. Because it was a plain, I think John is cluing his readers off that he's speaking about something symbolic. This is a, a plain where a number of battles were fought in ancient Israel. Israel fought a battle there in Judges 5. Israel was outnumbered, totally outnumbered, totally outmatched. But they won that battle because the text said that the Lord went ahead of them. The Lord was with them. The Lord delivered his people. And that battle and other battles in the plain of Megiddo serves as this pattern for God's people being outnumbered, being overpowered, and yet winning because God is with us. But at this point in Revelation, we're simply told that the kings of the earth and and the world under their authority assembled at Armageddon, at Mount Megiddo. But it doesn't tell us more. The rest of the book is going to give us deeper insight into this. But you can be sure of this, that when the opposition to God's people in Christ seems too great, when the persecution seems too much, when the waiting gets to be too hard, Jesus will come like a thief. He will not delay. And whenever you think about the battle of Armageddon, remember this, it takes place on the day of the Lord God Almighty. Man's wrath, the beast's wrath, will be intense against the church. But this is God's bowl of wrath not the beast. It's God's wrath that's going to be vindicated. It's his power, the Lord God Almighty, not man's power, that will ultimately be put on display. Why? How do I know? Verse 17, what happens next? The seventh angel pours out his bowl, and a loud voice comes from the throne of God and declares, it is done. History's over. Judgment has been executed. Judgment is now completed. And here we are now in this scene that reminds us of Mount Sinai when God came near. His presence is terrifying. In verse 18, there was lightning and thunder and a great earthquake unlike any other ever before in history. And the great city in verse 19, it splits into three parts. And the cities of the nations fall. Babylon the Great is nothing more than a memory. But when God remembers, he judges. Babylon, who had seduced the world with the wine of her passion, is now judged by God and will be made to drink, drain the cup of the fury of the wine of his wrath. Look at verse 20. Islands and mountains are gone. Verse 21, great hailstones will fall from heaven on people. Brothers and sisters, this is a judgment scene. It's affecting the whole world. And how do those opposed to God and his gospel respond? Verse 21, they curse God for the plague of hail because it was so severe. And that's the seven bowls. Completed, executed, God's judgment. Now, I want us to spend some time applying this, how we can take, what we should take away from this 
in our own lives and and in about six different ways. This is weighty stuff because life lived in God's world before God is weighty. Try as hard as you might, you know deep down life has massive meaning. You know God must judge. Now we easily expect judgment for those that we think are the worst among us. Hitler, Stalin, Stalin, Saddam Hussein, whoever. Somehow we think that the rebellion that we've committed against God in our little sphere, in our little place, God should excuse. He should overlook. If you're not a Christian, on what grounds do you think that that horrible person that comes to your mind should be judged? And you shouldn't be judged. I shouldn't be judged. Is that based on what your own sense of what goodness is? Or maybe you think that you've done enough good to to outweigh the bad. I'm hoping that as you encounter the God of the Bible, that your reasoning is being flattened when you see how transparently holy he is and how sinful humanity is. From the bulls, first we should learn that rather than being ashamed or, or even worse, repulsed by God's judgment, we should marvel at God's judgment. We should marvel at it. Because with God, the punishment always fits the crime. Look at verse 6. Chapter 16. They shed blood. They must drink blood. I think the temptation is to view these bowls as excessive. And the text will not let us see it that way. To think this is excessive is to think that God's true judgments are excessive. And so it's to question the goodness of God. It's to question his justice. It's to elevate the sense of your own judgment and place yourself as judge over God. These balls show us again how sinful sin is. For God to uphold his justice and goodness, this kind of judgment is necessary. Notice that in the bowls, every sphere of the world where idolatry and rebellion is taking place is being undone and judged. God is bringing judgment on the whole of his creation, seen and unseen. Secondly, see from these bowls how irrational, crazy sin is. How are the wicked responding to the judgments? Look at verse 8. They cursed the name of God. Verse 9, they did not repent and give him glory. Verse 11, they did not repent. Verse 21, they cursed God for the plague. We're meant to see that even as judgment is being poured out, those in rebellion against God will not bow the knee to God. Their idols are being exposed for the weakness that they are, and they will not give glory to the true God. Brothers and sisters, flee from idols. In your own heart, what sin are you clinging to? What sin are you constantly believing its promises? How do you know? Well, think in your own life about what you go back to, what you look to to give you rest. Or what you look to to help you escape. Or what you think will make you happy. What is it that in your life, if you were to think, if I don't have that, I can't be content. 
Why do you give that the weight that you give it? Think about it. Will it uphold its promises to you? And once you start to find that in your own heart, you're going to find what you're worshiping. What compels your heart to worship. This is showing us how the deepest, darkest sins of idolatry will be exposed. Here as sinners, not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, are clinging to idols rather than coming in faith to the true God. Keep yourselves from idols. They appear so powerful to us. They are so transparently weak. And instead, number three, stay awake. Jesus Christ says there is blessing for staying awake in verse 15. When he says, keep your garments on, it's not literal, although you should stay clothed. He is saying, stay morally alert. Live by faith. Pursue righteousness. Don't fall asleep spiritually, especially when you do not see a way out. That's when Jesus will come like a thief. When you don't expect it. To end up naked and exposed is to know shame. It's, it's to have your sin exposed before God because you've not hidden yourself in the refuge of Jesus Christ. So quite simply, keep going. It's worth it. Tomorrow and next week, that sin is going to present itself again to you. Listen to the words of your Savior. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Stay alert. Will you trust the word of the risen Christ more than you trust the word of your idols and your sin? Or will you indulge one more time tomorrow or next week? Hear and believe the risen Christ. Number four, the bowls teach us again the centrality of prayer. Prayer is fueling this judgment in verse seven. It's the altar saying. That's connected to the prayers of the saints that we've already seen in Revelation. God means for us to see that the prayers of God's people in his world matter. They feel so inconsequential to us. They can feel meaningless. In God's economy, they are anything but meaningless. God is using them to bring about his purposes for salvation and judgment. And God's saints praise God again for the justice of his judgment that have come about in response to their prayers. Pray. Be confident. Your prayers in Christ, through Christ, matter for God's purposes. Five. Learn from the bowls to be confident in the total sovereignty of God. Who's in control here? Is the world running off course? No. Is evil real? Yes. Is evil ultimate? No. As these bowls are being poured out, they're making clear to all of us who sits on the throne. Evil has a limit. One day evil will be no more. Notice God gives the bowls to the angels. God acts upon the various spheres of nature, to bring about his judgment. God rules over the throne of the beast and the kingdom of the beast, plunging it into darkness. God has determined the day of the final battle. God will win the victory of that battle. 
when the spiritual opposition and intensity of this world is at its very highest. This is not a chapter inviting us to debate God's sovereignty, but to worship Him in His sovereignty. It is revealed to us, His people in Christ, that we might rest, that we might be confident, that we might say with confidence, this is my Father's world, that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is its ruler yet. Have you noticed how this text and the rest of Revelation never hide the fact that evil is real and present in this world? But it also shows us clearly that it is mysteriously under God's control and all of it will be subjected to God's judgment. Do not fear, brothers and sisters. This is your father, my father's world. And finally, the bowl should cause you to see number six. The glory of Jesus Christ. It is Christ's death. It is Christ's resurrection. It is Christ's ascension that has put into motion the events that lead to the outworking of the bowls. This is weighty because God is weighty. Eternally weighty. And God is going to judge his world. But these same scriptures that reveal us to us honestly make it explicitly clear Christ died to save sinners from this coming wrath. The God who will judge has mysteriously come into this world, into history, in Jesus Christ to take judgment on himself. He came for sinful humans because among the many things that we can do, we cannot, we will not ever be able to save ourselves. We have sinned against the God who has made us, and we deserve his wrath. But his mercy is more. Christ has died for sinners. Christ has been raised for sinners, such that now Christ is king of the world. And by repenting and believing in Jesus Christ, you can be made right with God, the true God. Every reaction you've had is this sermon has gone on in your heart that has made you uncomfortable about this wrath. Remember, Christ suffered the wrath of God in its fullness for sinners. Come to Jesus Christ. Repent of idols and sin and believe on Jesus Christ without any money. He will receive you. Christian, rejoice in Christ. Enjoy Christ. What a Savior that we have to shield us from this wrath. And he doesn't just do that. He's freely given us righteousness. He's freely clothed us with his righteousness. This is weighty chapters. It's all about judgment. We've been working through coming judgment because we live in a world that cries out for judgment. This world cries out for Jesus Christ to receive the reward of his suffering and for his suffering people to be vindicated in this wicked world. And it also cries out, yes, for those who oppose Jesus Christ to receive the just judgment of God. These bowls tell us that life in this world is weighty, it is meaningful, and it is personal. Because God is weighty and meaningful and personal. 
Far from this being the intrusion of a petty and arbitrary God, the bowls of wrath prove that the only wise, all good God, will finish what he has started in his world. He will set everything right. He will bring each one of his children safely home. Let's pray. Lord, we feel the weight of your judgment, and we, if we are honest, cry out with the prophet Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. We praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, all the more that he has lived and died and been raised for sinners, taking your wrath upon himself that we might not have to face your wrath. We plead with you, sovereign Lord, to save to open the eyes of any here who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ. And for those who have, to cause us to rejoice in Christ all the more. And we pray this in his mighty name. Amen.